Welcome to Bell Curve with Mary Scott, Rachel, and Liz, three friends, three Southern Bells, joining you, smart women, to discuss life, work, relationships, business, everything from the nerdy to the normal, the practical to the philosophical, the head to the heart. Thanks for joining us as we observe, analyze, and often deviate from the standard. Liz Bashir's here with my co-hosts Rachel Briars and Mary Scott Hunter. The three of us love reading and learning and finding new tips and tricks to make life easier, better, happier, or more simple. A few times a year here on Bell Curve, we will share a book we've loved reading and discuss kind of you know the takeaways we've gotten from it. So our first one was in episode four when we talked about Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. In that conversation, we discussed she sheds and making sure that we have the space, both physical and mental, to be creative and develop our passions and work and play and you know, just kind of get away from it all sometimes. Today, we're talking through Gretchen Rubin's The Happiness Project. And you've probably heard us tease it in previous episodes. So we're excited. It's finally the day to discuss it. And now I don't want you to worry about having read it or not. I think you'll get lots of value from this conversation either way. That being said, if you do decide you want to read it, you can find a link to buy the book at our website, bellcurvepodcast.com. Now, here's a short description from Amazon. The Happiness Project describes one person's year-long attempt to discover what leads to true contentment. Drawing at once on cutting-edge science, classical philosophy, and real-world applicability. (laughs) That one snuck up on me. (laughs) (laughs) Ruben has written written an engaging, eminently relatable chronicle of transformation. So the book really came down to me, came down to three things for me. You can become happier with a deliberate daily effort to make yourselves happy, make others happy, and what gets measured get what gets measured gets managed. It may seem silly to make a resolution chart to see if you're getting happier, but it's really a mindfulness practice she found and um, was something that helped her a lot. So, so she she had a different little resolution every month. Every month kind of had a theme, and she had a big chart where she would mark off whether she felt like she accomplished the resolution she was working for every month. So January was vitality. It had to do with boosting energy and making the space around you more comfortable. She cleared clutter and started exercising smarter, which are things that you kind of think about might be new year resolutions. And then in February, she remembered love, endeavoring to nag less, show love more and have a week of quote, extreme nice where she tried really, really hard to be nothing but nice to her family. Particularly um, her husband, particularly her husband who didn't notice. I'm so sorry for I really wanted to give her a hug right there. Give her some credit, some gold stars. March meant it was time to aim higher. So she worked on, uh, she set work goals and discovered that enthusiasm is also more important than the innate ability in reaching mastery because it fuels your willingness to practice. In April, she tackled parenting and vowed to, quote, lighten up. My favorite in this one was how she resolved to sing in the morning. Uh, my mom usually woke us up with a song, and it really does make the, the start to the day a, a little sweeter. And, and sometimes I find myself whistling in the mornings to this day. I uh, sing a song to my kids when I wake them up. I do, too. Oh, I do. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning to you. And it kind of goes on from there. I don't think I've ever sung on the radio. But. <laughs> uh, May was be more serious about playing this. That, that that statement might seem counterintuitive, but I really loved it. Uh, she decided to be more intentional with leisure and to make to- more time to be silly. That's funny. I put a big question mark by that one. 
<laughs> that was the chapter I didn't like. <laughs> yeah, typical. What do you mean? Be more serious about play. <laughs> uh, June was make time for friends. Uh, when she had, and this is where she had her first major breakthrough. To make yourself happy, make others happy. And we talked a little bit about uh, making time for friends in our previous episode in AUA that came out last week. So go check that one out if you want to hear a few more of our thoughts on friendship. Uh, July was a little interesting. She decided to buy some happiness, which we're told you're not supposed to be able to do, by indulging in a modest splurge and to spend out. Now, there are some things I want to say about the concept of spending out that I think are important, but we'll get to it in a minute. August got a little bit deeper and she decided to to contemplate eternity. She got a little more spiritual and attempted a gratitude practice, but ended up finding that it felt forced. In September, she pursued a passion that meant for her she read and wrote more, including writing an entire unedited novel that during that month she just sat down and, and wrote, 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 wrote without going back and editing and was able to get an entire novel out in one month. In October, she was more mindful, finding moments to just soak in. November, she worked on her attitude, laughed out loud, looked for the positive and everything, and made the realization that being critical can be addictive because it makes people come across as more intelligent and discerning as compared to people who agree, which is, I thought, was fascinating. So fascinating. And December was a reflective month where she went back and, and restuck to all the monthly resolutions she had made throughout the year and tried to combine them all into one month. So with with those month res, monthly resolutions in mind... What did y'all think about the book? In general, did you like it or dislike it? I loved the book. This is exactly my kind of book, rooted in social science, packed with interesting research-based observations, highly relatable, funny, thought-provoking. While I was reading it, there I don't know if y'all noticed it, there was something I kept noticing about her style that made a really big impression on me. She is very, very authentic and honest, but she doesn't have an apologetic tone about her weaknesses. No matter how they may come across, she states them very matter-of-factly. Like she talks about how she tends to get belligerent and hard-headed when someone disagrees with her, or how she tends to focus on the negative rather than the positive, how she thinks like she tends to have bad manners even at the dinner table or I don't know, like little selfish tendencies. But rather than making a big fuss about that, about sharing her weaknesses like I probably do, it just seems like she has accepted her humanity and would like to think about solutions and isn't going to sit there and judge herself harshly for being less than perfect. And it really struck me as like true humility and the power in that is that as the reader, you kind of get to breathe easy and be like, oh, good. This writer is real. You know, she's going to actually be honest, which means this will be a good book. She is real. And I think it the, maybe one of the reasons it resonates with us and with our listeners is that her tone reminded me of our show's tone. Very. Yeah. We, we've talked about that a lot off the air and said we we're not going to bring anything if we don't bring ourselves. And her throughout the book, she says, be Gretchen. And her name is Gretchen Rubin, be Gretchen. And I kept, and as I was kind of going around, you know, in my life, as I was reading this book, I'm thinking, what does Mary Scott do here? What is being Mary Scott in this situation? So I, I do think that people, our listeners definitely respond when we are real. And I think our positive response to her realness, that's logical to me. Yeah, I loved the be Gretchen that she said over and over again, because I think sometimes you can walk through life trying to fit yourself into other people's molds for what you think that they think that you should be. 
instead of just saying, you know what, I'm Liz, be Liz here. And yeah, I, f- I found a lot of value in her saying that over and over again. A couple of chapters that I really loved. I I think we often underestimate the importance of clearing clutter. And clearing clutter, people like cluttered and messy desks because it makes them look more important. Um, you know, people, for some reason, can't seem to get to the back of the closet or can't seem to get through the linen closet. And they buy things that they don't need or they get injured or hurt because there's crap on the floor that they step on or trip over. You cannot... Sometimes these little actions of cleaning out a medicine closet or cabinet and throwing away the expired salad dressings. I mean, there's just something you can get on to more important thoughts when the clutter is gone. So let me put in a plug for a clean house and a clean car. And I'll put in a plug for on that note of she also wrote a book called Outer Order, Inner Calm about where she goes more deeply into <clears throat> about that clearing of clutter and kind of her process for it and how she has helped other people. Like she talked about in the book, she loves to help her friends clear their clutter. And, and her husband <laughs> said, you got to stop doing that. Some people don't want it. Yeah. And so that book was really good. It's really short. It's got lots of pictures and it's very actionable, but I really found a lot of value in it. I, I read it last month and really loved it. Um, there were a couple of other chapters. You asked in general, I, I, I love the book generally. I, I thought it was, and it's, that's saying a lot for me because y'all know I'm a fiction writer. And when I get to pick my month, that's going to be fiction for all of you listeners out there who are waiting for a fiction book. But I have to say, I went into this with the, like, Okay, this is the one we chose. I'm going to do this. And but I I didn't find it hard to read. I went through and marked pluses or question marks or minuses next to chapters I but I the chapter that I marked three pluses on, the one that I liked the most was September. And I know we're going to get into what we took from the book. So I'm going to tell you in a second what I took from September. But that one and July and June, June was making time for friends. July was, July really resonated with me about spending out. I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I want to tell you all a quick story. My, we, I didn't grow up in a, affluence. We were a regular middle-class family, but my, my mother when I was 16, had saved and saved and saved. And, and she did this for all three of us. She took a, she They did something really special for all three of us on our 16th birthday. That was something that they just did. And she took me to New York City clothes shopping. Wow. And I have the best memories of that. And we did a little sightseeing and saw a show, but it was clothes shopping. And I asked her, years afterward why that why she did that and it was kind of this spend out idea and this is she wanted to create a great memory for us but she also she instilled she wanted to instill in me something that she believed in which was dress like you want to be i don't know just that notion of you don't have to wait to use the teacups you don't have to wait to do something great. You don't have to wait to use the best China. Those things you can use. And I just giving people permission to use them. And I don't know, somehow that related to my mother's, that, that memory of my mother really saving and then going on a trip and spending out with me um, and not waiting for that day to come years in advance. I, I really loved the spend out advice as well. And she, I think she used the example of like nice tissues even too, of like how we'll save special things waiting for the perfect opportunity to use them or the right time to indulge in them when we bought them because they made us happy. 
So why wouldn't you use it to make, you know, to, to increase your happiness in the present? And immediately when I read it, I was like, there is that blue striped dress in my <laughs> closet. It's a gorgeous silk dress that I bought from J crew. And it's, you know, it's, it's a casual dress, but it's a little on the fancier side. It's like a go to a birthday party dress or a go out to a nice dinner dress. And so I was saving it. I had been saving it for like nine months to wear to the perfect opportunity. And I was like, why? I love that dress. It's beautiful. I'm going to wear it all the time now. <laughs> and, and I've worn it, I think, three times since I read this book. And it just makes me so happy every time I put it on because it's, it, it's flowy and it makes me feel pretty. And, and I'm, uh, that was one of the, the biggest pieces of advice from this book that really, really stuck with me because I think a lot of us have that propensity to say, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to save this for a rainy day, or I'm going to say, say this for the sunniest day and not enjoy the things that we enjoy on a more frequent basis. I really related. It seemed like she was sharing also that she tends to have a frugal streak for no reason. Like she'll let things run low or run out of things rather than just going ahead and buying the thing and having, having it at the ready. And that that was part of her resolution was to kind of examine that frugal streak that, and I I just, I related because I was like, you know, there, there are times when I think, man, why am I kind of creating this scarcity mindset? There's no reason Mm -hmm. that it's just, it's more like a tendency. It comes from a good place. Like let's be careful with our money or let's conserve or let's do this or that, but it can come across as, that things that aren't scarce are scarce. And I've had in recent years really take a look at that because your kids can start, can, can kind of start acting that way when it's like, wow, we have so much. We, we don't need to have that scarcity mindset. There's no reason to. Mary Scott, you said you hated August and contemplating eternity. Why? <laughs> it's not the subject. Um, I'm one of the types of law that I practiced briefly was elder law. And I... I find that subject for me so such a part of my profession. And when I did that, I don't do that kind of law anymore, but when I did, uh, it's just a very hard, heavy subject. And something about, she's not, this is not a religious book, and I don't mind that at all. I'm, I think, although all three of us are Christians, we... You know, we approach things um, using our faith, using our, you know, using our mind, using our our experiences. It's all in there. Um, I I did find though that she struggled with it a bit. She's a she was raised in a, a Christian household, although she she says it wasn't a particularly observant. And her husband is Jewish, and and again, although they were Jewish, they weren't particularly observant. So I think she struggled with this a bit. And for me. One of the things that is uh, brings deep happiness to me is my faith. And, you know, she she was kind of getting tangled up in, you know, what you need to do if you die, you know, or when you die. You know, what are the things that you need to do to take care of your family? To me, that has nothing to do with contemplating eternity. For me, contemplating eternity is really an examination of your faith life, your walk. And so uh, that that chapter just fell a little flat for me. The thing about August that was interesting to me was that she attempted a gratitude practice and found that she didn't enjoy it. You know, there there have been a couple of times in the last couple of years where I've tried to start a gratitude journal and cannot for the life of me get into the habit of it. What is it about that that seems to work so well for other people, but I can't, I 
Gretchen and I apparently have common that in common that it just feels forced. And I, I end up doing things like, oh, I'm thankful for my husband. Well, no, duh. I hope so. <laughs> I think for all, what I know and all both of you is that you are you're grateful for our friendship. You're grateful for your families. I think just you have grateful hearts. It's just a continuous kind of thing. And you don't have to write it down. That's why I think maybe it, it felt forced because I do think that Gretchen you know, for all her little faults that she points out about herself, she strikes me as a person with a grateful heart that's just continuous. So maybe it's just not necessary to write it down. I don't know. And I think going back in time a little bit, it makes her breakthrough that she had in June of to make yourself happy, make others happy, make a lot of sense too, is that, you know, sometimes I think we we think that by focusing on ourselves a lot, we can make ourselves better. But sometimes it's turning outward and focusing on others that actually brings us the most contentment and gratitude and and ultimately happiness. The other thing I was thinking while I was reading the chapter is a journal of of th- of things you're grateful for, account your blessings. You know, maybe that's something that you do when you're not feeling grateful to get that to to reachieve that grateful heart and that grateful spirit. Yeah, my, I like that. my I like favorite that month uh, that she covered, I, I think, was in January when she focused on vitality and improving her mood by eating better, sleeping better and exercising. And as I was reading that, I was thinking about something I once read that St. Francis of Assisi said he used to call his body brother donkey because he looked at his, at his body as this stubborn donkey thing that carried around his mind and consciousness, but often got in the way of what he really wanted to do. And I kind of find myself thinking of my body as sister donkey. It's this stubborn vessel that needs discipline to accomplish what I want in life. Like the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, right? So like my donkey default, which I've shared before in the health episode is sort of this like austere existence where I'm not being intentional. So maybe I end up going all day without eating. Or if I do eat, it's like not great food. And I think my default is also isolation and no exercise and all work and no play, which makes Rachel a very, very dull girl. (laughs) Um, That's my default that I have to resist. And that may make me kind of like, I I thought this was like, it might, that default that we all have, might actually make you happy in one sense, because the default is easy, which is a sort of pleasure, a sort of happiness, right? The path of least resistance is compelling. But she made the point, and I think I underlined it so hard, I almost tore the page, that, quote, happiness doesn't always make you feel happy. Activities that contribute to long-term happiness don't always make me feel good in the short term. In fact, they're sometimes downright unpleasant, unquote. And dang, that nailed it for me. I've really shaken. Mm -hmm. I've had to shake myself awake, particularly during the last year or so, that Sister Donkey misses out on a lot of real happiness and vitality and energy and joy when I slide into default and don't practice intentionality. I mean, I believe the research that says that community increases happiness, friendship increases happiness, as basic as it sounds, eating well, getting sleep and exercising increases happiness. I believe that. But like Gretchen said, you know, working toward long term happiness can feel uncomfortable at times. I believe that too. And where I underlined and almost tore the page was was when she would say and she said it several times throughout the book, happiness is hard work. Happiness is, it's easy to be grouchy. It's easy to be lazy. It's easy to be boring. It's easy to be some of these things, but happiness is hard work. It's not something that just 
comes. And I think there's this sense in life today that, oh, if I just, I don't know, I'm Zen enough and I just sit still. Yeah, there's time for stillness. There's time for peace. There's time for quiet. But, but the, but happiness, you have to work at it and not necessarily do all the things that Gretchen did. I think the point of the book is not to do all the things that she did. The point of the book is to figure out the things that the active things that you need to do and make plans to do and, and decide to do. And that that's a worthy endeavor. I love that she made the case that it is a worthy endeavor to try to become happier because, like she pointed out, the, ha- the greatest happiness in life is to make others happy. But to make others happy, generally, you have to be happy. You so have to be happy first. Like an, yes. Yeah, like you can't just be this sad drain who's always looking to outside people to make you happy. That They might do that for you, but you're not making them happy. So I think there's kind of a responsibility to lift your, you know, lift yourself up in ways that you know how, and that might be hard. I, I love that, uh, Rachel, that you just said that you have a responsibility because I, I think to some extent we have to take responsibility for our happiness. And that, I think that was a, a underlying theme throughout this whole book was that at the end of the day, you are responsible for making sure you are happy here are some things that might help you. Um, and, you know, at the beginning of the book, she talks about, you know, I wasn't unhappy. I was content with life. I, you know, there, I wasn't depressed or sad or unhappy or anything like that. But maybe I could, you know, be more intentional and become happier. And that's something that might seem self-indulgent to some people, but it really resonated with me because it does take intentionality. It does make take a decision to say, okay, well, I'm not just going to sit here and, and, and accept the status quo of my life. There are things I can do to make myself X percent more happier. Here are some things that I might try. It kind of made me think of that idea that everything is either improving or degrading, like disintegrating. It just it feels like it's like a, a law, right? It's either disintegrating or it's improving. And like, if it's gonna, the, the easy thing is the disintegration, the hard thing is the improvement. I mean, if you let a house just sit there for 20 years, it's not going to get better on its own. It's going to fall apart. Y'all, do you mind if I ask you about Gretchen's husband? Because that was a troubling part of, in his illness. And that was a troubling part for me. And I think we, we all have things in our life that are basically problems that we can't fix. Gretchen's husband has hepatitis and he contracted it as a eight-year-old, I think she said, during a surgery. And she, in true Gretchen Rubin fashion, she talks about it very matter-of-factly and says, well, of all the terminal diseases you could have, this one isn't so bad because it has a 30 to 40-year incubation period. But he contracted it when he was eight. At the time of the writing of the book, he it had been 30 years. And so at that point, they were in that window of expecting liver failure from him. Uh, oh my goodness, I just, hmm. um, we all have things that we just can't fix in our life. You know, people that we that are unfixable, situations that are unfixable, health concerns, financial concerns, you know, uh, you know, wars in the Middle East, um, you know, politics, you know, things that we just, we can't fix. I, I was struck by how, what she was doing, and I, this resonated with me, is that when there are problems that we can't fix, we do what we can. What do y'all do when you have problems that you can't fix? Usually thrash around and, and wrestle with it for a long time and <laughs> talk it to death and and uh, and then come out on the other side with some semblance of resignation. That's not that's not healthy, is it? 
I think I've had to grapple with that this is a time of life when things are going really well and I need to not be waiting for the other shoe to drop. I have a real mm-hmm. tendency to be driving down the road and thinking, is this the, is this the day I'm going to get in the, the life altering car crash and wish that I had appreciated my life more? Like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not the only one. I have these morbid thoughts all the time or like I'll be at exercise class and be like, am I going to get hit in the head with a barbell and like not be be a vegetable in a coma and wish that I had enjoyed my life? I mean, it's just like so like I don't, I don't need to have these thoughts. On the one hand, they I do. Want, I want to have Rachel's inner thought bubble like all the time coming up. <laughs> like if you were to look at me, you'd probably like, like, what is that lady thinking about? Like she has this look on her face. But I think that I, I do like to sort of have that thought going in the back of my mind so I can appreciate life more. But, but I also don't want to live in like a morbid dread of what's coming next. So I think mm-hmm. like I'm in a good, good stage. There have been times that we've gone through health problems and just various things that we couldn't fix. But I think in the good times, gosh, we should enjoy them. There are problems that you can't fix. Although don't necessarily believe you can't like, for example, if you don't like, I've been struggling with politics and I decided to take on leadership of a little club, a little political club here, but that it almost died out. But I did it because I thought, well, I can't, you know, I can't do anything about Washington. I can't even do anything about Montgomery. What I can do is try to do something which is in my span of control. So if something bothers you enough, and in Gretchen's case, she goes to her husband's appointments with him. She takes notes because she's good at that. She she keeps up with things. One day she describes calling him because he hadn't called. She, it was one of the times she couldn't attend a meeting with him. And she called him a little bit frantic because he hadn't called her. And it, she said, well, you know, what was the result? He said, no change. I'm, you know, no change. She goes, what do you mean no change? Like, no change bad? No change good? No change... <laughs> But she did, she did what she could to address the problem. And I think when you're in one of those situations, you have to, okay, what can I do in this situation? Sometimes the answer is nothing. Sometimes the answer is nothing. And, but I think figuring out what it is that you can do, doing that, and then being resting after that, resting and knowing I've done what I could do to address this problem. That part resonated with me because I do think, there's going to be some listeners out there who think, I've just got this problem I can't fix. This this book isn't for me. No, it is. It is. Another little tidbit, and I'd heard this before uh, about there, there are varying opinions on faking it until you make it, but there's one simple thing that you actually can do that uh, that studies have shown can help you feel happier, and that is just putting a smile on your face, whether you... <laughs> whether you want it or not just suck it up and smile baby because um, <laughs> according to a, a 2012 study published in psychological science um, they found that smiling during brief stressors can help reduce the intensity of the body's stress response so at a physical level at a psychological level the chemicals in your brain are different when you put a smile on your face regardless of whether you're actually happy in that moment or not but when you put that smile on your face then those chemicals come flooding in and you do actually feel happier, which is fascinating to me. So I know my my brother Jamie is out there. And the other day he sent me a little funny meme. You know how they, you know, from Instagram. And it just struck me the wrong way because it was obviously cobbled together. And, you know, it was political and it just got, I don't know, I just, it irritated me. And so I had this snarky, 
response to him. And it's the only time he's called me or texted me in a month. And I just thought I could have just handled that so much better if I had just decided to put a smile on my face and say, hilarious, you know, even if I didn't think it was hilarious, because for the record, Jamie, I really didn't. But but I do think he's hilarious <laughs> and I love him. <laughs> so I do think. It's not phony. It's not fake. It, if you want to be happy, paste that smile on your face, even when you don't feel like it. And you'll be surprised at what will, well, it, your relationships will improve. Your outlook will improve. Your attitude will improve. You know, I do think they're just, there's a reason why our moms, you know, told us, you know, wipe that frown off your face. Or even just and, doing I mean, any of the things that we may not want to do, but that we kind of, we know either by research or experience do actually lift us up when maybe we're feeling in the dumps. Like for me, usually when I get down, the very last thing I want to do is to be around people. I'd rather go into a hidey hole and come back out when I'm all better. But I do think that actually being around the right kind of people is a surefire way to pull me out. It's kind of like that idea of putting the smile on your face, like just go do the thing that you kind of know, even though you don't feel like it. You know, I also going on a walk or praying or getting into nature, distracting myself with a book or music or working out is pretty much a guaranteed pick me up. You know, I thought it was interesting that Gretchen wrote that in her research, she found out that when people's minds are unoccupied, they tend to drift to anxious or angry thoughts. And that one reason women are more susceptible to to depression than men is that women have a greater tendency to ruminate, which is to kind of dwell on slights or unpleasant encounters or sad events, which leads to bad feelings. Men are more likely to distract themselves with an activity, Gretchen writes, which research shows is a powerful mood altering device. So, you know, we need to do those things that we don't feel like doing because we're going to we're going to feel better on the other end of it. I think to bring it full circle, she comes to the conclusion, and and I think that I agree with, I know I agree with her, I I think that y'all might too, that happiness doesn't happen by accident. A true happiness, a true fulfilled life doesn't happen by accident. You have to be intentional. You have to make decisions to do the things to become happier and and to become a more content and joyful person. Absolutely. She wrote that happy people are, I thought this was interesting, they're more altruistic, more productive, more helpful, more likable, more creative, more resilient, more interested in others, friendlier and and healthier. She, She wrote that happy people make better friends, colleagues, citizens. And, you know, I think there are times that life will lay you low. I mean, one of my favorite songs by Lecrae, he's a Christian rapper, is called I'll Find You. And there are just some lines that I think if I can read them, because he so poetically captures how badly we can sometimes feel and how we end up needing God and needing each other. He, He says, I'm hanging on by a thread and all I'm clinging to is prayers and every breath is like a battle. I feel like I ain't come prepared and death's knocking on the front door, pains creeping through the back, fears crawling through the windows, waiting for them to attack. They say, don't get bitter, get better. I'm working on switching those letters, but tell God I'm going to need a whole lot of hope keeping it together. I'm smiling in everyone's face. I'm crying whenever they leave the room. They don't know the battle I face. They don't understand what I'm going through. And then Tori Kelly comes in and sings back, just fight a little longer, my friend. It's all worth it in the end. But when you've got nobody to turn to, just hold on and I'll find you. And I just thought that was really great that at those times in your life when you just can't really be happy that's we need friends, we need community, and we need God. So Mary Scott sang, Rachel rapped. What musical? <laughs> that was a what white girl's rendition. <laughs> Do you want to like pull out, <laughs> pull out an instrument? You're 
<laughs> oh, beatbox. We are devolving. <laughs> Early. Um, in September, like we mentioned, she wrote an entire novel, and um, that was pers- part of pursuing a passion for her. Is there anything like that that y'all have ever said? Okay, I have this chunk of time. I'm going to p- go all in on a passion project. Well, I don't know if anybody ever has a chunk of time once you have kids, but <laughs> so, but I do think that for passion projects, you you make time. And um, the NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month that she talked about was something I didn't know much about. But I went to my library and asked about NaNoWriMo. Turns out they have a group that meets and I am going to join it and try it. Oh, wow. Awesome. That's exciting. And that's usually in November, right? It is. It's ne- It starts in November. I'm going to start mine on November 8th and go until December 7th. So those it's 30 days of writing where you write between 1,300 and 2,000 words a day. And I haven't written fiction in a long time. And I thought about, I haven't quite decided what I'm going to write about. But you write basically unedited. I don't know if I can really convince myself to write unedited, but the goal is to write, 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 write. And your your novel may not be very good, you know, at the end, but at the end of 30 days, you have written, you know, a 50 to 70,000 word novel. So I am going to try it. Wow. That's exciting. Thank you all for tuning in while we discuss Gretchen Rubin's The Happiness Project. Uh, if you wanted to look through that and read it, I, you know, I found it at my library, but then I loved it so much I went ahead and bought a copy. You can find a link to buy a copy on our website. And, you know, while you're there, poke around, take a look at some other episodes at bellcurvepodcast.com. You can also find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at bellcurvepod. We have some great discussions over on our closed Facebook group bell curve insiders if you would like to join those just let us know and we'll add you right in thank you so much for tuning in today and we hope you have a good week